Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. And the satraps and the perfects and the governors and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. May God add his blessing to this, his word. You may be seated. The Heidelberg Catechism starts off with the question, what is your only comfort in life and in death? And the answer in the Heidelberg Catechism question one would be that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood, and he has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation, because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit. Uh, Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. That's the catechism's answer. Our question today is the same as this question. What is your only comfort in life and what is your only comfort in death? Nebuchadnezzar has erected a statue in the image of a God he created. Last, when we looked at this, we saw Nebuchadnezzar is glorifying himself. He wants himself to be celebrated for the worship of the statue he made. I made this. Worship the statue and me its creator. And at this ceremony where he's having everybody worship, there's everybody. All the rulers of the province of Babylon. Everyone who's of any kind of importance in the ruling of Babylon, that specific province, are there. And if we remember in the end of Daniel 2, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, or as in this account it's called um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, are promoted as a boon to Daniel after he interpreted the dream. They're promoted to be rulers in the province of Babylon. So they 100% are a part of this crowd that comes in and is called in for this great ceremony. They stand there, they come up, they're with everyone, and they don't worship. The others see it, the other leaders who are likely envious and full of jealousy, and we'll definitely see this later, lots of envy and jealousy. They see an opportunity, and they call out, O king, didn't you say, 
whoever doesn't worship this statue, you're going to burn them in the fiery furnace. And with this proclamation, Nebuchadnezzar turns his attention on them. They, um, at the sound of all these instruments, had not bowed down. They had not worshipped. It's in this, this setting that we see this testing of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And take a moment to put yourself in their shoes, okay? Here, not only is there a crowd that now needs to worship this statue or else, and you're the one kind of in the crowd going, please don't make eye contact with me because I'm not doing this. But now, suddenly, they've been called out, brought before Nebuchadnezzar, and as we'll see later, they are still, this whole time, the whole fiery furnace incident is in front of the whole crowd. This isn't taken off somewhere. This isn't after the ceremony. This is in front of all of their colleagues, all of the fellow workers, all these leaders, uh, all the musicians for how many instruments there are of Babylon, of the province of Babylon. And they get called out and brought out and singled out. And here they stand before the king with fiery furnace in proximity because they're able to do this all in this setting. And now that they've been called out, like if you reflect back on these men's life, think about what's at stake for them. Think about what's at stake. So their life, our story with them starts off with, here they are in a nation of Judah where they witness their king die in uh, Josiah. So that, that would have been a bit before their time. But then they see their king, their kingdom fall. They're, they experience a siege, which is a terrible thing to experience. They experience their fathers likely dying in battle. They're then seeing the sack of the temple, of Yahweh's temple. They're then taken into slavery. They're shipped off away from the promised land, what they have been taught over and over and over. This is the most, this is the promised land. This is the promised land. We finally got it. And they're being taken away and taken away to a far land. Now, after being taken there, they're now trained in an academy by the Chaldeans. And when they're trained in this academy, they're trained in the ways of mystical things that are antithetical to Christ, that they're against Christ, and they're against the work of God. And they're being taught things that are of the culture of the world to the point where they have to abstain from eating at the table of the king to say, we are not a part of your worship. We are not bowing the knee to the king and his idols. They go through all of this and their life's put at risk. They have to try to um, talk to different, the guards and they talk to this chief, um, the chief eunuch and then the head of the stewards. They go through all of this with Ashpenaz and all of his people to try to just be able to eat the vegetables and not eat at the table of the king. And having navigated all of this here at what should be their lowest low, you think it is off Away from them, there's a bunch of knuckleheads, a bunch of magicians and these satraps, these Chaldeans, the enchanters. They're at the king's bedside because he's in terror of a dream he had. And he challenged them, tell me my dream and tell me its interpretation. They have no clue. They say, this is impossible. We can't do it. So the king says, all right, all of you are dead. Everyone in your order is dead, which includes these men. So now not only have they gone through all of this, they're sentenced to death through the works of these dudes. Through the providence of God and the blessing of God, we see Daniel comes to them, prays. They go to their knees. They pray. The four of them pray, and the prayer is answered. Daniel interprets the dream, and after he interprets the dream, ah, 
finally, like in our story, in a movie, we reach the point where after having hit the low, you have this climactic event where Daniel tells him the dream. He interprets the dream. And at the end, the king says, oh, what can I, like, what can I give you? What can I give you? What do you ask for? Let me, let me give you some glory. And Daniel says, wait a second, I have three other colleagues. Will you please bless them as well? And they are now given these positions of power in Babylon. And on top of that, Nebuchadnezzar says, oh, your God is a God of gods. He is a Lord of kings. He is a revealer of mysteries. Woo! Think about this arc for these men. They've gone through all this and then rose the elevator to the top of Babylon. They're, they're rulers of the province. Not as quite as high as Daniel, ruling over all of, all of the kingdom, being secondhand to Nebuchadnezzar, but they're over a wealthy and powerful province. And now they just heard from the mouth of the king in front of all the witnesses that he acknowledges the existence of their God. They should now be free to worship. They should be now free to experience life in a pleasurable way. You get to live in nice houses. You get wealth. You get an opportunity to worship rightly. All of these things come with it. And so if you think about this idea of I started from nothing, they started from nothing and went below nothing. They became slaves all the way to the point now where they have wealth and it's not ill-gotten wealth. It is the gift of God. It is the grace of God that they have gotten it. And so here they stand being tested, having gone through all of this. And this is what's on the line. So in a moment here, we're going to look at the rest of this message will be broken into two parts. What is your only comfort in life? And what is your only comfort in death? And their only comfort in life, think about this, they have all the comforts now. And anyone who's had a bad job or had a terrible event or had um, a miscarriage and then has a pregnancy, the feeling of going from rags to riches, from having terrible um, trauma to the opposite and having blessing, you appreciate it so much greater. It's so much more valuable, so much more precious to you. And it's all at stake in this question. So here Nebuchadnezzar stands before them, asking them, is this true? We're going to play all these instruments again, and you need to bow down and worship. If you don't, you're going in the fiery furnace. They're experiencing the good life, the comfortable life. A good life filled with what should be worship. At a minimum, there's a faithful gathering of at least four. We have these three and Daniel. And we know there are others involved in the exile that are, are part of the remnant. They have the opportunity to worship. The life is good. And in Daniel 3.6, we, um, we see the first time Nebuchadnezzar threatens this. And this is before threatening them specifically. This is the threat in general. Whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into the fiery furnace. Then look again at Daniel 3, 15 through 17. We're going to see here, Nebuchadnezzar is specifically challenging them. He knows, he knows these men. He knows what he's given them. He knows his power. We have Nebuchadnezzar, a cruel and ruthless king, and he is making a threat. These men know the threat is real, and in front of this threat, we have the threat again and their response. It says in Daniel 3, 15, now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, 
to fall down and worship the image that I've made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? He's going to get his answer. But in this moment, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. We have no need to answer. There's one that they have to stand before and answer. I, I can't help but read this, feeling the comfort they feel. They're in this moment, and sure, I'm sure there is real fear and terror. There is right in front of their face, real persecution, and they are in presence of this fiery furnace, right? It's already there and maybe burning to some regard, but it is already there in front of them. Presumably the king is pointing at it. They know this real threat, and they say, we don't even need to answer you. They're not going to talk about it. They're not going to do the politicking thing. I'm sure all of us have been in a position at work or something where you're thinking, okay, how do I say the truth, not give up what I believe, and yet, at the same time, not get me in a position where I'm going to get fired or in a position that's going to be highly confrontational? They're, they're not thinking this at all. They're saying, I don't even need to answer you, because if God wants us to save us, he will save us. I think it's fair to say that their only comfort in life is God, and that God will save them. Before we continue the story, I ask you, Check yourself. What is your only comfort? What do you find comfort in? You were tested this week in some way. You were tested. Maybe it was your children, the way they're behaving. Maybe it is responsibility and anxiety creeping in. Maybe it's alone time, lustful thoughts. Whatever the situation is, you had tests and an opportunity to say, are you going to find comfort in this world, or are you going to find comfort in Christ and his ways? Think about that test, whatever that is. Pick one of them. We had many, many, many. You have many today, but pick one, the one that maybe you struggled with. What is your comfort? What is your comfort? Not just truth, but comfort, that peace beyond understanding. Is it that whatever that test, that trial, whatever that thing might be, is it that the God who saves, he's a God who saves. I trust him. I have no need to answer this test, this trial, this temptation. Or is your comfort in the things of the world? Is it in the things of everyday life? Is it in your routine? Is it in your family? Is it in you name the thing? These men's comfort was not in their position and authority and power and wealth and food or whatever that thing might be that we deal with. Their comfort was in God and God alone who chooses to save and protect life if he so um, sees fit. Our response to the tests of life may not be so, um, seem so black and white as what they have. In fact, we, we may even prep in our mind this superhero-like response to tests. Okay, 
If I were put in a position where someone says, do you believe or bow down to this thing? And it is, it is right in your face. I know what I'm going to do. I'm prepped. I'm psyched up. Yeah. As a, as a man, I'm thinking of macho. Like, yes, I'm ready to be a martyr for this. But what happens when your spouse is struggling and needs a little attention, needs a little extra support and help, but you have other responsibilities? What happens when your children are acting up, not obeying? They're not, symbol, they're not acting as Christ would have them act. What happens when the money doesn't seem to be there? The stress piles up? Those tests might not feel so black and white, and yet you are being tested. Are you finding your comfort in God or not? Is your comfort in this life in God or not? Let's look at how these men respond in um, the next verse. In verse 18, we'll look at how they respond. And see, you'll see that beyond this, their comfort is not only that God will provide life if he sees fit, but that also if God does not see fit, God is their comfort in death. In verse, um, uh, in verse 18, we see them say, so this is the, the continuation after they, they, in verse 17, say, If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. Great. God will save me. God will save me. And then they say what I think is the harder thing to say, which is, But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Your will be done on this earth as it is in heaven, not my will. If I die, I die. This but if not is something maybe we attest to as a church. This idea of I, I'm willing to, to die for my faith. I'm willing to, to do that. But how many of us treat God as a genie, as a wish granter? How many of us turn to God only in certain events? Think about your life. When are you, have you felt that like fire for God? Opening devotions is the excitement of the day. You have the music playing. You have the hymn playlist. You're getting them memorized. You're memorizing verses. You're, you're proactively texting people via Bible verses. You're reaching out to other fellow believers. When emails go out needing help for something in the church, you're there. And then there's other times where devotion starts to slip off. Maybe you use a Bible app and you realize, ooh, it's giving me that reminder I just swipe away. You realize going to church, you just don't feel the gusto in the music. It doesn't feel that good. You say things in your head you know are true. You recite along, but you're going through the motions and you know, hey, I'm going to get this. I'm going to get that fire back. It's just not here today. What are the circumstances in your life in these two different highs and lows? For some, it might be they only feel this fire for God and locked in on God in the, in the lowest of lows. When something's happening to their family member, their own health, life, their finances, uh, whatever tragic thing might be going on, then we turn to God. Or maybe it's the other way around. Maybe, ooh, God's my lucky rabbit foot. He's, he's my, my shiny thing that helps move me along through my day. Things are going good. I got to keep a good thing going. Let's go through the actions of, of memorizing Bible verses, singing praise, because things are good. 
whatever those are, those, th- those areas, I, I challenge you to think through, where are you, f- when do you turn to God for comfort? When is your comfort in God? These men, their comfort is in God, in life, and in death. If God takes you this very moment, so be it. So be it. Praise the Lord. These men's comfort is not in their, not in their life, but in the life of Christ. Not in their death, but in the death of Christ. That is their comfort. And we face these tests in subtle, perhaps more subtle ways all the time. As we continue through this passage, we see in, um, uh, in verses uh, 19 through 23, Nebuchadnezzar is filled with rage at their response uh, to, them, to him, saying, we don't need to answer to you. They're speaking of a greater authority. And in verse 19, it says, Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was uh, changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated, and he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, to cast them in uh, to the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. They said, if we die, we die. And to the point, this fire is so hot to the point where a spew of flames burns the two mighty men throwing them in. Nebuchadnezzar has made himself God. He has acted as the um, emissary or ambassador of the adversary. Here he is persecuting with a fiery furnace those who stand before them and attest to their life and death being in Christ. They don't know the name Jesus Christ. They do not yet know the angel who is to come to them in this hour of need but their hope is in that Messiah. Their hope is in him. And here, already we have the question from Nebuchadnezzar saying, what God could save you from this? Like, dude, what about, what a setup. Here now he follows through on his command and says, burn them, let's go, throw them in. We have all the satraps, the prefects, Chaldeans. We have everybody of the province of Babylon watching. Let them see. Let's show them a sign if you want to stand up to me. And in his rage, this angry man throws them all into the fiery furnace. What happens in that time, in that time in the fiery furnace? We don't fully know. We don't know if the angel fully came down or what happened in between the time of the men burning up, them in there, how long they're in there. What we do know is that the images of the outlines, or at least the images of people, is seen. You can see how many people there are in there. To the point where in verse 24, King Nebuchadnezzar is astonished and rises up in haste. I think it's worth rising up in haste, noting two men, mighty men, burned up outside of the furnace, let alone those who just fell bound in the furnace. And they're still there. They're still there. And yet he sees there's a fourth being. 
And he declares to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, true, O king. He answered and said, but I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire and they are not hurt and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar is witnessing a miracle in front of him again for the second time. He's had already the miracle of his dream and told to him in its interpretation, but here he is witnessing as close of a miracle as it gets to seeing the Messiah. He sees him through the fire and the flame. I strongly believe this is not just any angel, but that this is Jesus Christ, the second person coming to save these three. This whole chapter, this whole section, if you remember, is in Aramaic, and it's being taught from the perspective of the Babylonians, from Nebuchadnezzar's perspective. And our key for that is in the names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. When we're speaking, when it's in Hebrew and we're speaking from the Jewish perspective, it's Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you'll notice all of this is from the perspective of Nebuchadnezzar. And even this, when Nebuchadnezzar leans over and is talking to his counselors, he's asking these questions about these men. Well, it's, it's his perspective. He's asking a question. And for his limited knowledge of what Yahweh is, he says, the fourth is like a son of the gods. So he sees a fourth that is a deity-looking image what he believes to be a deity. This, this angel is in, could have saved them without being present, right? Without being physically present. This angel could have just preserved them. They stood there. Everyone gets bored of watching a fire that burns nobody and, and gone through this exact same circumstance. And yet there is a fourth who says, you will not burn these three That cannot happen. There is no throwing into the furnace apart from my will. And we have a fourth who comes in and preserves these three. Nebuchadnezzar notes the fourth and he calls them out. Nebuchadnezzar is able to come near to the door, but obviously does not want to open this door with this fiery furnace. And he yells to them, come out. They come out. The difference between these three and the two men serving at the behest of an evildoer and doing evil is Jesus. The difference between those two who died in the fire and those who did not is Jesus. Where is your comfort? Is your comfort that Jesus does miracles and can spontaneously heal people? Is your comfort in the routines of this life? Is your comfort in church attendance? Is your comfort in the well-behaved nature of your children? Is your comfort in your spouse, your education? Is your comfort in your routines? Maybe your comfort's in food. Maybe your comfort's in music, your education, your job, the bank account zeros. There's these things that provide us calm and comfort. The check cleared. This thing happened. This thing didn't happen. Those might be your comfort. And I'll tell you this. I believe the adversary would love nothing more than to distract you with being comfortable with this world. This world is a comfy place. 
Americans in particular, we experience a really comfy life. We experience a really comfy life. We live in the desert, and yet I am comfortable standing here in beautiful air conditioning in a place that amplifies my voice, comfortable seats. My children are asleep on their mom over here. There is a lot of comfort in this world, and I would say the adversary is pretty pleased with finding comfort in this world. But our only comfort in life and death is in the precious blood of Jesus. Our only comfort in life and in death is in the precious blood of Jesus. If that is not how you feel day in and day out, you need to change. You need to pray to the Lord that he will become your only comfort in life and in death. These men lived it. We had two saints who passed away from this church who lived it. If anyone spent any time with Steve or with Annie, their only comfort in this life and in death was in the blood of Jesus. Their only comfort is in the blood of Jesus. If you find comfort in anything else, they might be blessings, they might be graces from God. The rain is a grace from God, and I am pleased that there is rain so there might be crops so I can have food. And yet, my comfort at the end of the day, my peace beyond understanding, is in the blood of Jesus. He is the only one who can preserve us from the fiery furnace. He is the only one, when others try to bind us, says, no, you will be unbound, and I will bind the one who is trying to bind you. The only thing keeping us from the fires of the furnace is the blood of Jesus. And if it is not for that, if that is not your comfort, if that is not the thing that just gives you goosebumps and warmth and comfort and joy and peace, you're in trouble. You are in big trouble. This is not a Sunday-only thing. When you wake up, it's Jesus. When you eat, it's Jesus. When you spend time with family, it's Jesus. When you have a frustrating conversation with your boss, it's Jesus. When your family dislikes you because you love Jesus, it's Jesus. It does not matter. He is the only comfort in this life, and we see it here with these men. This is what it looks like to do it, to stand with all what we would call comforts of this world and say, take them, take them, take my life. It is only Jesus. Turn with me to Romans 14. Romans 14, 7 through 9. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Steve and Annie aren't here with us, and yet Christ is just as much their Lord now as he was on earth. It is a location that they are in that is different. And we will one day get to worship with them, but the status of us belonging to Christ is no different today as it is then. And the confidence they have in heaven is the confidence we should have. And we're not perfect. We are not sanctified yet. And we will be when we die. But until that day, we need to strive to be, have the same level of confidence as those who are comforted by the physical presence of Jesus. He is the Lord of the living and the Lord of the dead. Turn over to Matthew chapter 10, verses 28 through 31. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. 
Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are, not of, more va- you are of more value than many sparrows. How much more valuable are each one of you? How much more valuable was baby Judah? How much more valuable are Steve and Annie? How much more valuable are all of us who live and walk in Christ today? We are more valuable than sparrows, and yet not even a sparrow falls. What comfort do values have? Do valuables have of this earth? We are the valuables. We are the treasure of Christ. We are his inheritance. We are the treasure he inherited, and he died for that inheritance. We're going to go back to Romans. This will be the last time I have you flip over. Romans 8. We're going to look at the first six verses. Again, think through Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. these, These teachings of Jesus and later the Apostle Paul, they didn't have those yet. They didn't have those yet. Even if you say, I have no, I'm, I'm not biblically trained, I'm a child, it does not matter any of you. You have enough here today in the gospel to have sufficient faith to stand before a king and a tyrant and say, throw me into the furnace. Your comfort is in Christ. Read it in verse eight, or chapter 8, verses 1 through 6. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. These four, or excuse me, Daniel, or not Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, their peace and joy was on the Messiah who could save on earth, but no matter what would save on earth and will save them. Temporary afflictions, if you set your minds on the things of earth, it is death. This is teaching. If you set your mind on the spirit, it is life, it is peace. If you sit here today, comfortable with this world, and you are here because you're supposed to, I mean, how many people go to church services on Christmas and Easter? Why? Why? Oh, it's comfortable. It's comforting. They're walking into their own judgment. And that can be you today. If your comfort is not in the blood of Jesus, you need to go to your knees today and pray that the Lord will forgive you your sins and that the Lord will help you to believe. For our brothers and sisters in Christ, if you find yourself getting distracted at times, even by things that the Lord blesses us with, If you find yourself distracted with children, with success at work, with success wherever it is in your life, maybe ailments and comforts go away, whatever they might be, if that is distracting you from the blood of Jesus, 
be on guard. Let whatever gracious things God does for you drive you back to the blood of Jesus. That's where we should be. I'm going to read the Heidelberg Catechism for us one more time before we go to him, to the Lord in prayer. And I want you to hear it again and reflect on it. What is your only comfort in life and in death? That I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood, and he has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. Let's pray. God, we are, we are grateful. We are grateful, but not grateful enough, Lord. Please help us to be more focused on your blood, the blood of the lamb, the blood of the lamb who was worthy to be slain. Lord, we pray and we thank you for the comforts that you do give us through other means, through ordinary means, through gracious means. Lord, we thank you for these things. But we pray that that drives us even further to you, Lord. Your will is being done on this earth as it is in heaven. Help us to keep our focus on your will and what is being done on earth and heaven through the work of Jesus. May you be glorified this day. In your son's name I pray. Amen.